The morning text for today's sermon is Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. We know that in everything God works for good with those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Romans 8 is one of the goriest chapters in the New Testament. Look at verses 35 to 36, for example. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So the backdrop of this big painting that everybody loves is just gory. And then Paul comes along with his big red paintbrush and he just splatters all over it. H-O-P-E. Hope. Verse 37. No! In all these things we are more than conquerors. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, slaughter are more than defeated. They are captured, enslaved, and made into servants of the people of God to do you good all your days. Isn't that the meaning of your beloved verse 28? We know that in everything God works for good with those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose, or as the King James says, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Whatever version you're looking at, wouldn't you agree that what verse 28 means is that God sufficiently rules in the affairs of this world so that all of your experiences are turned by Him into servants of your good. It seems to me that that's what verse 28 means. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, slaughter, work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His promise. So the rugged hope of the believer is not to escape distress or hunger or nakedness. The rugged hope of the believer is that all the agonies of your life are taken by a sovereign God and turned into instruments of His mercy for your eternal good. 
six blocks west of here on 7th Street, south side, there is a big hole in the ground. And in the middle of that lot is a huge mechanized scoop. On these backward kind, something like this. And I am a little kid at heart and love to read truck books to my boys and scoop books. And so I just look at that thing every time I go by. It takes two of those scoops to fill a dump truck. It is big. And it's digging a foundation. Now, around the outside of the lot where the retaining wall is already built, it must go down five, six stories already. And when I mentioned this to the group last night, a guy came up afterwards and he said, and did you see the drill in the middle that's 12, 12 feet wide? It's going down digging these pillars. And I hadn't because I'm into scoops. <laughs> what do you suppose we should learn from this? What is implied? What conclusion do you draw? Well, the conclusion I draw is some big is going to be built on that lot because the bigger the building, the deeper the foundation has got to go. And so it is in biblical architecture as well. The taller, bigger, wider the promise, the wider, deeper the foundation has to be to hold it up. There ain't no bigger promise in the world than Romans 8.28. It is absolutely massive in its proportions, isn't it? A sovereign, all-powerful, all-wise God pledges himself to turn every pain and every pleasure in your life for your eternal good. What brick would you take and lay on top of this skyscraper promise to make it taller? Name it. All means all. They all work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his promise. If you live inside Romans 8, 28, you are like the rock of Gibraltar. Nothing can blow you over. Outside, there's confusion and anxiety and turmoil and uncertainty. There are these little straw houses of deadening drugs, little tin roofs of temporary riches and little cardboard fortifications of anti-ballistic missiles and all manner of other substitutes for the security of Romans 8.28, and it's all in vain because this one fortress works. Once you walk through the door of this massive structure, enter into the center of Romans 8.28, everything changes in your life. A stability, a power, a strength, a hope, a joy, firmness, a depth, grip you. You can't be blown over anymore. By nothing can you be blown over. All the pain, all the pleasure, and believe me, it's going to come. 
can't blow you over. It's an incomparable refuge. Therefore, the foundation of Romans 8.28 has got to be big. It's got to go down deep, deep, deep. Verse 29 begins with the word for in all the translations. And all of you know what that means, don't you? The little word F-O-R means here comes a foundation. My goal in the next four weeks is to take you on a guided tour of the foundation of Romans 8.28 and just go down with you in the elevator of revelation as far as God will take us and look at those massive pillars and look at those huge cement walls and find out what sort of divine structure can support such a massive promise as to say that all things will work together for the good of His people. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And oh, how my longing rises as I write these messages. Just rises. Oh, God, make these people see it. Make them strong. Make them powerful. Make them like iron and steel in their faith sink their roots down around the rock of Romans 8 29 and 30 my plan is to devote this morning's message to verse 28 and especially to the little preview foundation in the words called according to his purpose Tonight, 6 o'clock, we'll devote the whole lesson to verse 29. Whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And then for the next three weeks, morning and evening, we will devote our energies to verse 30. And we will not exhaust it. The question we begin with this morning is who are the beneficiaries of Romans 8.28? Existentially, personally, that's the most important question you could ask, I think. Am I one of the beneficiaries of Romans 8.28? Is it mine? Where does a person get the certainty to say all the pain, all the tribulation, all the persecution and famine and nakedness and peril and sword and slaughter that might come into my life is going to be my servant for my good. Where do you get the assurance that you can say that? Well, Paul gives two answers to that in verse 28. The first one is the beneficiaries are those who love God. All things work together for the good of those who love God. This is the first and great commandment that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
and all your soul and all your strength. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered up into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. That's qualification number one. If you love God, all things work together for your good. If you don't, they don't. The second qualification is not something we do, but something God does. All things work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, what does that mean, called according to His purpose? Well, the way I want to go about trying to answer that with you is to look for two verses where this term call is used and then one verse where the term purpose is used. The first clue as to the meaning of called in Romans 8.28 is found in Romans 8.30. So I direct your attention to look at that verse with me. Those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Now what we learn from that verse so far is that those whom God has called, He justifies. That is, He acquits them of their guilt. He forgives them. He pardons them. He accepts them as righteous into His eternal favor. All of them. Those who are called are justified. But now, do you see the implication of that for the meaning of call? The implication is... The call is not the general call that goes out over the television when Billy Graham preaches and calls men to faith. Billy Graham and all good evangelists summon men to Christ. Come to the fountain, drink. Anyone who's thirsty, come, drink freely. Why would you die? Come. But that's not the call referred to here. It can't be because there are thousands upon thousands who do not believe in Christ, who hear that call and are called in that sense. And if they don't believe, they're not going to be justified. But Romans 8.30 says, those who are called are justified. We know from Romans 5.1 that we are therefore now justified by faith. And so everyone who hears the general call of the gospel that goes out from pulpits and over the radios and televisions, they're not called in this sense because all those who are called in this sense are justified. So Paul must have something different in mind in verse 30 and Romans 8, 28 than he does when I speak of calling people to the gospel as a preacher. And he does. It's so clear in 1 Corinthians 1. So I invite you to turn 
with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 to 24. Here Paul makes clear that the general call that goes out through the preaching of the gospel is not the same as the call being spoken of here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now notice carefully. Paul preaches Christ indiscriminately to all Greeks and all Jews. He calls them to the crucified Christ to be saved. And some from both Greeks and Jews are called. Now what does that mean? It means that God, through the preaching of the gospel so effectually works in the hearts of those who are listening that some of them stop regarding Christ as foolishness and stop regarding Christ as a stumbling block and start regarding Christ as the wisdom of God and the power of God. That's the call of God and we should call it an effectual call. It effects what it commands. It creates the faith that it calls for. So Paul teaches that when the gospel is preached in the power of the Spirit, God calls some powerfully and effectually into faith. And that's why Romans 8.30 can say, those who are called are justified. Nobody drops out between called and justified. Yet he says faith is the bridge between justification or between the call and justification. So the only conclusion I know to draw, and we'll talk about many other places where this is supported later on, is that the call is not the general call that proceeds from the lips of a man but the effectual, powerful, divine call of the Holy Spirit by which the heart is changed so that it believes and is justified. All those who are called are justified. I had a dog when I was little. Her name was Blackie, and I loved that dog. Nine years she was part of my life. And I considered a great sin, but I think I would have rather my sister died than that dog. <laughs> I talked with that dog when I was alone, when I was scared, when I was tired, when I was embarrassed. And I used to call Blackie when I came home from school. Here, Blackie, come on, girl. <whistles> and sometimes she came. And sometimes she didn't come just lay there in the sun, making her belly black. That's not a good analogy of the divine call. It's a lousy analogy. 
a good analogy of the divine call spoken of in Romans 8.30 and Romans 8.28 is the call of Jesus to the corpse of Lazarus. Come forth. Because the call contains the obedience. It carries the power. It creates life, light, faith, love. Therefore, when Romans 8.28 says, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His promise, it means the beneficiaries of this promise are people who once upon a time didn't love God and were not qualified for Romans 8.28. And then they were called and faith and love was begotten by the power of God in their heart and they were qualified for Romans 8.28. The effectual call of God is the fulfillment of the new covenant promise in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, which says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart. There's coming a day, Moses said, when God is going to undertake in the fulfillment of His new covenant promise a work that is so sovereign and mighty, it creates love to Himself and does not depend upon the fickle will of man any longer to have a people for himself. He circumcises the heart so that we will love him. God issues people into the massive structure of Romans 8.28. It's one thing if God sends out a general mailing, occupant, to whom it may concern, to every household, and invites them to the banquet of Romans 8.28. And it's another thing if he gets in his limousine and drives up to your front door, gets out of his car, walks into your house, opens the door, picks you up from in front of the television where you're besotted, carries you into his car, drives you to the banquet hall, dresses you in the indispensable garment of love, ushers you in and seeks you at the right hand of his only begotten Son. Now, whichever of those you believe in, don't you think that if he did the latter, your confidence in his commitment to pursue you with mercy all your days and work everything together for your good would be greater than if you had taken the initiative and said, well, I'll try out this invitation and go over there and see if I might get into this banquet hall and seat myself at the right hand of God. Would not your confidence be stronger in the Romans 8.28 mercy of God if that were the foundation, which it is, as we will see in the next four weeks and already see in this preview of the foundation. Oh, brothers and sisters, we deny ourselves such wonderful assurances of mercy, such wonderful assurances by failing to believe in the sovereign, effectual call of God. 
There is such a strength. There is such an iron, steel, bronze-like solidity that comes into the life of a believer when he sets his heart on the doctrine of God's sovereign and effectual call. When he knows how it is he came to stand here in this massive structure of Romans 8.28. Well, as though it were not enough for God to give you the assurance that you have been effectually called, he adds this last phrase, according to his purpose. All things work together for good. For those who love God... To those who are called effectually according to his purpose. Now, what does that mean? What did Paul want to add here? Why did he stick that on? Why does he get all theological? I hope that your attitude towards doctrine, towards words like according to his purpose, is not glib. As though, oh, we'll uh, leave that aside and not get divisive or whatever might happen if you started to take the scripture seriously in detail. Don't be like that. Love the Scripture. Love every phrase of the Scripture. None of it is put there for nothing. You know why Paul added the phrase according to his purpose? He added it so that you could handle the death of your wife, husband, child, cancer, accident, failure, Job loss. It all holds up Romans 8.28 by which we live. It's the most precious thing we have as Christians. If you say, oh, leave that aside for another day, you sweep out from under this massive structure its foundation. Don't do that. Don't sell yourself short. He's given it to you as a gift to help you live your work day tomorrow and believe that what happens when you get to work is for your good. Now, what does it mean? The only other place in the book of Romans where the word purpose occurs is Romans 9, 11. And so let's go over there. The context of Romans 9.11, it's the same word used in Romans 8.28 and the only other place in the book, is that Paul is trying to show that not every person who is an Israelite is a truly spiritual Israelite, or not every person who is descended from Abraham physically is a true spiritual child of Abraham. And he wants to make clear that the difference between the merely physical and the spiritual is not any human, distinctive, but solely his call, which accords with his purpose. And the two words from Romans 8.28 are right here in Romans 9. Let's read verses 10 through 12. 
Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, in order that God's purpose, there's the word, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, or literally because of the one who calls, she was told, the elder will serve the younger. Now, what's the point of those verses? The point is to describe the nature of God's call. And here's the way he does it with the case of Jacob and Esau. They were twins. They were in one person's womb. They had the same father. They had not yet done anything good or evil. And then God told their mother, this one, not this one. Why? Why did he do it that way? Why did he wait until they had grown up and had an occasion to show that they would become a believer or an unbeliever or righteous or unrighteous? Why did he do it that way? And Paul, as clearly as anyone could wish, answers that question in verse 11. He did it that way in order that God's purpose, God's purpose of election. Now we know what he's talking about. God's purpose of election might stand, continue, be maintained. Not because of works, but because of the call alone. In other words, the call of God is unconditional. It does not look for any human distinctives. It accords not with your purpose to do anything. It accords with God's high and holy purposes. He knows why any person is called and not another. It accords with His purposes. If God did not call people without regard to their distinctives, but instead called people on the basis of their distinctives, then his purpose of election would fall. Paul cannot conceive of such a thing. God would become like a political candidate up for vote in the world. And he would go from precinct to precinct to see whether or not he might perchance be elected Lord. God would propose, man would dispose. The size and the makeup of God's constituency would depend finally on the vote of man, not God. And the success of God's mission in the world and the possibility that there might be converts and worshipers from every tongue and tribe and people and nation would depend finally on man and not God. And Paul cannot imagine such a God. We imagine such a God. He exists all over the place. Not in Romans, nor anywhere else in the Bible. 
Jacob, not Esau, before they were born or had done anything good or evil. Why? So that God's purpose of election might stand, not according to any human distinctives, but solely according to the effectual call. That's all. God reigns. He is sovereign. What then is the foundation of Romans 8.28 in closing? Where do those of us who believe, do you believe today that all things work together for good in your life? Where do you and I get the confidence to say that tribulation, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, slaughter, are going to work for our good. Where do we get that confidence? Two places. One, we have been effectually called by God into this massive structure. And two, this call did not come from or arise on the basis of anything so fickle and wavering as my purpose to get saved. The call of God arose from and is based upon His purpose to save me. And He has borne witness of this in my heart and in many of your hearts by creating out of stone a heart that loves God. Let's pray together. Lord, my great desire, my heart's desire is that your purpose in revealing the foundation of Romans 8.28 would not be rejected by this people. Please, God, open their hearts to see that they would be utterly undone in the deadness of their sins. If you as the Creator God did not say, Lazarus, come forth. Do it. This very day for those who are yet dead in their sins. Awaken them, O oh God. And may this be the day of new birth, regeneration, and the effectual call of the living God in the lives of people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.